The Judo Chop Suey podcast is presented by Health IQ, a life insurance agency that helps health conscious people lower their rates on their life insurance. Are you someone who takes care of their health and fitness and takes special care of themselves through proper nutrition? Do you lift weights or take part of a physical activity like judo? And I'm sure many of you listening do. Then visit www.healthiq.com forward slash judo to learn more about Health IQ's special rates for active people like you and me. 56% of Health IQ customers save between 4 and 33% on their life insurance, and these savings are exclusive to Health IQ customers. So if you want to learn more about how Health IQ can help you save on your life insurance, visit www.healthiq.com forward slash judo to get a free rate quote and to learn more about Health IQ's special rates. Salutations to everybody out there in podcast land. This is the Judo Chop Suey Podcast. And I'm your host, Judo Dave Roman. Back from a long hiatus. Apologize for that, but I I am entitled to vacation every once in a while, and that's what I did. I went to up to the northeast. Well, not quite the northeast. I went up to Washington, D.C., up in the Virginia area, and spent some time with family. Uh, visited some of the sites in D.C. and had an overall nice time. But I am back today. I am back to talk about all things judo. On this episode, I have a very special guest with me. He is somebody who has been listening to the podcast since the very beginning. I had an open invitation to anybody that wanted to join me on the podcast to discuss judo. And he was the first one to ask. So I decided to bring him on for this episode. And here he is. Ray, thank you very much for joining the Chudo Chop Suey podcast. How are you doing this evening? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure having you on. I, You are the first winner, if you want to say, of the, you know, join Judo Dave on the Judo Chop Suey podcast as a guest co-host. So congratulations to you. It was a fake contest, but this, <laughs> but this uh, co-hosting opportunity is very real. So I appreciate you taking the time. So Ray, tell me a little bit about yourself, uh, where you're from, and um, you know how long you've been doing judo and what your club is. So, to give the listeners a little bit about who you are, uh, because everybody tends to know who I am. So, okay, well, uh, let's see. My name is Ray Baronis, and I am a USJA member, NQ, and. I, along with uh, roughly four other people, uh, run judo in Roswell, New Mexico. And for those of Ro- you guys... Wait, the Roswell? Yes, yes, the Roswell. Oh, wow. Always wanted to go there. That's, <laughs> that's great. Must be a tourist trap, I'm sure. Well, well the tourist season just started, so we've started okay. seeing people start coming in. It, it, there, there is a big influx of people in Roswell during uh, both spring break and summer because there's a, there's a lot of stuff. <laughs> now, now, for for the benefit of the listeners across the ocean, uh, can you explain real quickly why Roswell is significant? Well, Roswell, New Mexico, is the home of the UFO incident of 1947. 
but I'm going to say from someone who was born and raised in Roswell, I, I did live in Los Angeles for about 10 years, but for someone who was born and raised in Roswell, I'm going to, I'm going to say the short version of that story as far as like the UFO goes is Roswell is within 200 miles of NASA test facility. It's within 200 miles of three different Air Force bases uh, and a couple other military bases. And it's near Trinity site, which is where the first atom bomb was dropped. And during the, uh, during the World War II, it was also the place that the Roswell Army Airfield was the place that the atom bomb flew out of. So all that said, I will, do, I will say this, that if you live in Roswell and you don't see something in the sky that you can't identify because of all of that that's going on around us, then you're just not looking up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's tremendous. <laughs> but, but yeah, that, it's, it's the Roswell. So, so, but to give everyone else a sense of place as far as like um, training options go, um, as far as like the judo angle of this, Roswell is uh, about 50,000 people. And Roswell is the largest city, 250 miles. So there's a... Oh, okay. Yeah, so we're on the edge of uh, what's called the Permian Basin, which is oil fields. And so about 250 miles to our west is El Paso. 250 miles north is Albuquerque or Santa Fe. 250 miles east is Lubbock. And a little more than that south is Midland. But between Roswell and there is nothing but either oil fields or ranches. Interesting. So how does that that distance when it comes to judo and your club? I mean, so you've you've got a relatively small club. Are there any other judo clubs within Roswell or is that it? About two years ago, there was another USJA club about 90 miles south. Uh, but that club is no longer around that's really interesting to me because i where i live in in tampa bay there's probably i would say you know of various sizes maybe 10 to 15 different clubs so you've been training for how long now and you're, you said you were a NICU. you've been training for how long uh that's a that's a sketchy one <laughs> <laughs> um i'll give you a little of my history um in the mid '90s, my brother uh, was training, and he was really competitive. Back then, he would have been on, in the uh, the Yawara organization, which was the regional Yodam um in Texas, New Mexico, somewhere Arizona. Okay. And and uh, and uh, I was training uh, Kyodo at the time. For those who don't know, Kyodo is a uh, Japanese longbow archery. Oh, cool. Basically, what was happening was, was uh, my brother was very competitive, and he um, used me as a, as a training dummy, essentially, because uh, when you're in college and you're competing, you can't afford a, tr a training dummy or extra mat time, but you have a brother around then, you know, these things happen. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
so so I I did some judo with my brother um but like I said I mainly practiced the the archery and and uh and did that um martial art for a long time basically what happened was I think it's about five years ago now my son he was having some issues at school um some bully issues and basically I I had uh I had grown up essentially in you know with my brother who were very familiar with judo love judo by the way I you know I, um as someone that does kyodo I I've been exposed to other martial arts like BJJ or karate or taekwondo um of course judo in my opinion is is the best one because it's it brings in the meditation and the mental the mental growth that comes along with the other meditative arts like uh, kyodo one of the reasons i like judo so much is that it has that meditation aspect of it and uh so my son was having bully problems at, at school i'm obviously a person loves judo as well as a couple other martial arts and and so we were like you know what he's in kindergarten we need to get him in a judo program to see if that helps out with the bully problems and lo and behold it really did oh that's great you know it, it and it, and it didn't it didn't help out in the way that that most people go oh yeah well now he knows judo so now he can he can uh beat people up that's really not the way it works you know and sure. it, and it, and it doesn't work that way Basically, no, no, what, of course not. Yeah, basically, what happened was was you have all these you have the bullies in the in the playground, and they threaten and they you know they threat with violence, but they really, when it comes down to it, nine times out of ten, that's just a threat. They're just they're just being aggressive, and when you start putting a child in judo or any of any of the grappling arts, if someone wants to be aggressive with them and they start escalating things most of the kids that have done judo are going to go oh well i'm comfortable with with this I, i've been on the mat i've been aggressive okay so when someone threatens them it doesn't send them cowering and then all of the power of the bully is taken away right right exactly no i and i completely agree um something you said ray that i've not really heard Gosh, in, in ages, anybody really bring up, you're talking about the meditative aspects of judo. Can you, can you delve into that a little bit? Because I know for myself, I came up in mostly competition clubs, but the, the club that I spent the longest amount of time in at the end of our training sessions, we would uh, have a, uh, my instructor would call out, uh, I believe it was called Muxo. And we would have a meditative, reflective moment at the end of class. But he, his was the only club that we ever did anything like that. So I'm curious. It's interesting to hear you bring up that aspect of it. Can you talk a little bit about that? So in our training, um, we do the Mokuso um, at the beginning of it and at the end. And basically, I've got to say this, though. I am at the belt buckle of what's called the Bible belt. So like, you know, <laughs> Texas and all them, you know, I'm right at the 
right at the edge of that. And so there is a little bit of cultural resistance to to the meditation part. And, and that's not usually how I, I don't, I don't approach it to people that have never been exposed to the way it's done in judo, or at least the way that I've been trained to do it in judo. I've never approached it as sort of meditation. Um, I've, I've approached it with, with, with them in, in the same way that I've seen it approached in the judo books that I've read. And that is uh, more along the lines of controlled breathing. Because uh, in some of the books, it talks about when when you do the mokuso, the reason why it's a 30-second long meditation during the mokuso is you're inhaling for the 10 seconds. You have the still breath for the, an additional 10 seconds. And you have the exhale for another 10 seconds. And if you're doing that as a regular part of your training, then when someone is trying to suffocate you, it's very difficult for them to do that. And, and that's outside of the idea of, of the meditation. And then the other half of it that you're supposed to be getting out of the Mokuso is the concept of Mushin. Have you heard of that concept? I'm not familiar with that. Uh, Mushin, I, I like calling Mushin uh, the zone. Because basically, well, here's a good question, because I might be able to relate it to something that, that you know, as far as when you are, when you were getting to the point where you had a tokuiwaza, uh, right. how, how did you come across the idea that, oh, I have a tokuiwaza? It took a, it took a while, just, just constant practice of different techniques. And then one day, I, and I, I've said this before, I've told a story before, I actually happen to have on video uh the the moment that judo actually clicked for me i just happened to have the camera rolling and it was i i threw osotogari uh within that video and it just felt right it was just one of those instances where it felt right and i've really been doing it that way uh ever since right and and the idea that that you're supposed to be getting during the mokuso is you're trying to work towards the mushin the mushin is is Japanese for empty mind. And if if you were to turn your mind off is the idea. Okay, so if you turned your mind off and allowed your body to react instead of overthinking what you're gonna do, then normally what comes out is your tokuiwaza because you're, you're not thinking about it, you're reacting. And that's a really excellent point because that's, you know what, I was just referencing that video. That's That's exactly why at that moment judo clicked for me because i was i was just reacting i wasn't thinking about techniques i wasn't thinking about combinations how to grip how to string things together here and there it just it just started it's just started flowing for me and then that that's how i try and, and even do judo today it's just uh you know in my mid 40s things don't flow as uh, quickly as they used to <laughs> <laughs> oh don't they that's been a, a rough change as getting up into my forties as well. But, but no, and that, and that's the idea is that you're trying to get, you're, you're trying to, you, you're trying something that's difficult for you and judo is difficult. And then, and then as you go on, as, as you practice it, as you train it, and then it, then you have to think about it less. And the idea that, that you can finally 
not think and still do judo, that's where you're trying to get to with your meditation is that you don't have to think about it. I mean, that's that. And that was something that stuck with me from the Kyodo days is, is that uh, a lot of times when we were practicing it, we weren't graded on whether or not we even hit the target. The idea that the instructors had a, back then was if you get every single step correct between pulling your arrow out of the quiver and releasing the the arrow from the bow if everything is correct then the bullseye would naturally follow there's you wouldn't be able to not do the bullseye right because you're doing it correct and so from that sense um and this is the this is the meditation that you take from the kyodo and that that is sometimes practiced in judo is that the idea is not that you're trying to think about how am I getting, you know, uh, for a Sotogari, okay, so I need to off balance them this way. I need to push them to their back left. And then I need to lift the gi this way. I need to step through. I need to put my, that's not going to get you there. Um, if once you've trained yourself to make those steps, then the throw is, is the natural result of that. Yeah, completely agreed. And that's, that's like, I, like I said, Osoto Gari, it's one of those things for me that I can, I feel like I can hit that in, in any direction from any grip, because I don't even really think about the throw anymore. It just comes automatically. As a matter of fact, when I practice, I have to, I have to restrain myself from doing the throw because it's just, there's a lot of times where it just comes in so naturally for me. How has the experience been for you doing judo with your children, really everybody coming up uh, from from the beginning that way? And and just to give you a little background, I, I've got two sons and I never brought them to judo because for me, I always, I, I did, well, one, I didn't think they were very, they weren't very interested in it. And I just judo for me was something that I was very passionate about. And for me, I did not, I wanted my kids to develop their own passions per se. And I, I don't, I'm not, I don't criticize anybody that, that puts their kids in things that they're interested in or whatever the case may be. That's just the direction that I, that I went. And and eventually I did bring them into judo until, until I threw them hard once and <laughs> they were done. <laughs> And I well, didn't mean to do it on purpose. I, I, uh, especially my youngest son, I, I did a, uh, a Kodiashi on him doing Rondori very lightly and he dropped like a rock and, and he, he said to himself, this, this just isn't for me. Yeah. That's a, that's a hard throw sometimes. It, it is. It is. I felt badly, but it, just like we were just talking about a Kodiashi Barai is one of those throws that I also do very naturally without even thinking and it was just one of those things that I, I just did instinctively. He stepped a certain way. I moved a certain way and he dropped like a rock. I felt terrible because this was the first time I had ever actually hurt my son. <laughs> you know, he didn't get injured. It's just just he was kind of he was kind of dazed for about 30 seconds. I felt badly. I, I got some really good advice when when I was uh, when I was still living in Los Angeles. Um, I had a coworker who gave me probably the best parenting advice that I'd ever gotten. And I still use it to this day. And basically what it was, 
was you can never uh, tell your children what to do. You can only show your children what to do. And he, the way he explained that to me was that, that when you're, especially when your kids are smaller, when, when they're, you know, kindergarten age or before, they get exposed to stuff, new stuff that, that they may not know what the proper reaction is. And when they get exposed to something, a situation that they don't know how to handle, in their mind, they go out and they go, well, how would mom react to this? And how would dad react to this? They don't, they don't have like this natural, this is good, this is bad. They're just looking at the situation and go, well, how do the people that I idolize, the, the people that I model myself after, how do they react? And, and that's basically what happens is, is they react and, and, uh, and typically they react by modeling behaviors that you've already done. And, and if you go and you tell that kid, oh, well, you should do this. That's not going to hold much water with them compared to, to, what they've seen you do. And so from from my standpoint, getting my children into into judo wasn't an issue wasn't an instance of me saying, you must do judo. It was more along the lines of, hey, you're having bullying problems. Let's get you into judo and hey, I'll do judo with you. Gotcha. Because because I don't expect you to do anything I wouldn't be doing. Very and, good point. Yeah, that's great. That's a great way to do it. Yeah, and so and so that was that was more of the point. Uh, I I wasn't necessarily getting into judo to like, uh, you know, learn how to do self defense or whatever. I I'd already gotten enough judo that I felt like I had a a, a fundamental grasp and and I was okay with that. But I wasn't. And about force my kid to to go do judo and him never having seen me do it right and no that's and, a, that's a good that's a good point yeah and so and so it's it's kind of interesting because um because my son has done judo and he's also done the mma stuff and i also have him enrolled in the uh, gracie baja brazilian jiu-jitsu program and he wants to do the judo and and the reason he wants to do the, the judo and and this is one of those things I was like I asked him the other day I was like what do you want to do when you grow up and he said I want to be a mechanical engineer and I was like well why do you want to become a mechanical engineer and he likes to build things he likes levers and pulleys and he likes all of that sort of things and he offered up he was like that's why I like judo better than I like BJJ. And I was like, you need to elaborate on that. And so what he told me was that when he plays judo, it's all about levers and fulcrums and uh, levers, fulcrums, and different ways to, to manipulate your opponent's body to the same way he would if he was building a a backhoe out of uh, Legos, right? Right. 
Whereas he feels like BJJ is more about frames and wedges when he's thinking of it. It's like, it's very well, interesting. well, he, he thinks of BJJ. Well, I need to get my wedge in under here so then I can do a sweep and I need to frame up so then I can create space. But he doesn't think of the, the movements in BJJ as being um, lever-like or mechanical. He, he, it, they're, they're, different, they're different areas of language, language for him, and he likes the judo better. Interesting. I've never heard anybody that's very, uh, very astute for a young man, you know? Well, yeah, well, and, and that's one of those funny things. Is to, it's just one of those things. He, he likes building um, machines. And he he feels like judo is a way to manipulate your opponent like they're a machine. Yeah, you know that's that's one of the reasons why he likes Osotogari so much is because he can take someone's outer elbow and start shoving it upwards like it's a lever to to get the off balance, and then he steps through, and then he uses his leg as a as another lever, and you know he he views it very mechanical, very very much like. Like he's um, building Lego stuff, putting stuff together. Uh, I think that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. So, so how about yourself? So you you started judo. How has the process been for you? Starting, you know, presumably in your in your mid to late thirties. What what has that experience been like? And what things have you learned starting at such a late? Because I started at 31, but I was, I, I was always kind of in, involved in different sports and, and such. So, what about for you the experience being a middle aged judoka? Well, I I think that there there's a couple things with it. I mean, my own my own personal experience is that is that I had gotten into a job where it was a lot of desk work. And my activity level was much um, lower in my late 30s than it was when I was in my late 20s. And, you know, I'm 5'8". And at the time when I started into judo, um, I had some back problems, uh, shoulder problem, and I was about 170. And really, I ended up having some... uh, physical therapy on my back and some other things that went along with that. But basically the orthopedic surgeon at one point, he tells me you have one or two choices here. You're either going to get old like everyone else and you're going to have a bad back and your, your shoulders going to be very, or you're going to need to get physical again. And, and as I was doing as I was starting back up on judo, I kind of made the decision, well, if I start training judo, say I, I start training for um, some shiai, that gives me the excuse to start getting the physical activity that my orthopedic surgeon says that I need in order to not have surgery on my back. And so from that standpoint now in my early 40s i'm at 155 and i'm a completely different body shape 
and I could probably rip the head off of, of my late 30s self. Yeah. I'm, <laughs> I'm so much more healthy. My back feels wonderful. I don't have my shoulder problems anymore. And basically what it was was if you don't use your body, you lose it. And so I, I have a larger range of motion. I, you know, and that's the thing is that with judo as an older man, I can get my, my meditation practice. I can get my physical practice and I can, uh, make sure that my body has a reason to be stretching out and going in, in all these directions that, and ultimately that keeps me much healthier than I was in my late thirties. Yeah, that's, that's, that's really good. I, for, for myself, I find myself going the opposite direction because I, I, I've always been fairly active. So it's kind of, it's interesting to hear your perspective on that because for me, I feel like I'm going the opposite way where, you know, some, there, there are times where I feel like, like judo is starting to take its toll. Do you ever do you ever get that way at that point, or you're actually feeling stronger than before? Well, I am I, I am feeling stronger than before, but I but I have had, you know, I'm not a young person anymore. So, like uh, as an example, I was trying to uh, I was drilling Yoko Wakari, and that takes a little bit of a there's a there's a leg there's an outside leg plant that happens that uh really that's something you have to work up to and and if i was a younger person it would be just just been one of those things oh well that that didn't feel comfortable but as a as an older judoka i had to step away from the mats for like a week maybe two i should have stayed away from two but i didn't because you know a week off the mats you know it's <laughs> everyone wants to go back early but you know my my calf muscle was was really tweaked um from trying to do that that uh, it's, it's kind of like an outside step into a uh spin right and uh and so that rotation after the outside step caused my calf to really get tweaked so so that's the thing is that is that Whereas when I was younger, I would have just gone, oh, well, that's not comfortable. I'll just shake it off and then do it more. Um, as as an older judoka, I, I go, okay, well, now I have to rest that. And now I have to do some actual targeted weightlifting and stretching to build that muscle up so that it can take that stress. Yeah, and that's I, a lot I different. That. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So what kind of uh what what kind of training facilities do you have? I mean, do you use crash pads? You got are you you got tatami on a sprung floor or, or is it on top of concrete? Like we've got mats on concrete and a uh, crash pad. Gosh, that's that's rough, man. I mean, how many falls do you, do you typically take a night on uh, without the crash pad? Do you think yeah, about what forty fifties? Yeah, in the ballpark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's interesting because I I take, I, I mean, my role at my my little club is just kind of an assistant instructor. But I you know I take falls, 
you know, sometimes for the kids or, you know, we got a couple guys that show up every once in a while. Um, and, you know, Ron Dory, I never really think about it, but, but man, you, you know, Nagi Komi on, on the floors, you know, on Tatami, which is on top of concrete. I probably got about anywhere between 50 and a hundred throws in or, or falls in me before I'm done because it just, uh, gets gets a little bit more now during Rondori it's a little bit different because I I never feel it until the next day but that's always okay but um but yeah I, I tell you a lot of judo clubs just don't have the kind of facilities and, and the kind of of mat areas that that a lot of us should have especially as we're transitioning to our older ages it, it, it's it takes a toll uh, at least it does on me there's some mornings that I have a tough time getting into the car and and things like that so well you know what i found that uh, and, and this may for some of the more advanced judoka this may be obvious but but what i found has really helped out with the people that are new to judo because those those falls aren't comfortable but there is a i think his name is nerd writer i'm not sure but there is a person that does that did a YouTube video about Bruce Lee's one inch punch and how how the I think it's called a kinetic chain, how that works. And basically what he explains is he, he, he breaks down the one inch punch. And what he explains in it is how the force of the back heel of of Bruce Lee as he plants it is is bracing through to to form a stressed kinetic chain between the foot through the body and through the fist and so the reason why the one inch punch ends up working is because he has a complete kinetic chain that he can push the power through and, and what i found is that when you're doing the falls, when you're doing the ukemi, what you end up doing that really helps out a lot is essentially an, a broken kinetic chain, so a broken one-inch punch. So instead of punching with the foot braced against the, the ground, you're punching the ground and the energy dissipates because there's nothing to brace your the opposite of an end of your body against as you're falling. And so... I've been able to take some people that haven't been doing ukemi ever and I will get them on the punching bag and have them do uh, forearm strikes as they turn and then have them do side falls as they turn towards the mat doing forearm strikes so that the forearm strike happens just before the rest of a very small instance before the rest of the body hits and really that that shortens up the the time that it takes to get someone up to speed so that the uh so that they don't necessarily need the sprung floor <laughs> or the crash right. mat right right because that's a really difficult concept for a lot of people to uh, most people don't get ukemi for like two years before they're actually able to do it so that so that they don't feel like they've been tossed in a dryer. But yeah, I um, yeah, the 
I mean, I I've got decent Ukemi. I mean, don't you know? Don't get me wrong. I I, I think my Ukemi. Well, I, sh- I should be given my given the experience <laughs> that I have, but but I no I but you know even even so even with with good Ukemi, you know a lot of a lot of times you know during let's say during just during Rondori or, or something like that, you you can end up caught in a way that that. Uh, it's not ideal for you to get the proper ukemi. You know what I mean? Sometimes you just end up getting slammed right on your upper back, and there there is no, you know, with with a just an odd grip, and there's just no, <laughs> there's no escaping that. You just kind of have to take it and 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 uh, you know suck it up a little bit. Yeah, so. especially with people that like to do like makikomi or something like that. Right, right. You know, in, in competition variants of certain throws. Uh, sometimes don't allow for the for the ease of of uh, you know getting that ukemi just right. It ha- sometimes it just happens so quickly, you know, especially with the really skilled people. Yeah, and and that's one of the things that just being a father too. That's one of the things I stress so so much with my son and with my daughter is that they get the ukemi right. I I really don't care if their their techniques aren't up to snuff. It's you know. That's going to come with time, but I really get on them with the ukemi. It's it's really important for me, not just for my kids, but for anyone that that I train with. That that the ukemi is is the best. And in fact, it was pretty funny um, last year. My son was in a naga competition, and he entered both ki and nogi, and and those competitions are just submission grappling and they're open to judo people, BJJ, everyone that can do grappling. And all of the other coaches that were at that meet had just kept on commenting on how my son, even though he was getting thrown in uh, hip tosses or whatever, he was smiling the whole time. He was laughing about people taking him down. And right. they weren't getting position on him in transition because he had, he, he, he wasn't thrown off by the fact that he was getting thrown. And, and that's, that's one of those things that I, I drill that ukemi in him because, because ultimately I'm, I'm less concerned with whether or not he's winning a gold medal and more concerned with whether or not he's doing safe training. And I, I, I'm with you on that, Ray. I, you know, there's it seems in some clubs that that I've I, I've visited and stuff the ukemi is not taken as seriously as it should especially with with the younger kids because we we kind of view them as as very uh, uh, adorable in some ways but I see a lot of lazy ukemi practice out there uh, not not everywhere obviously but uh, I, I gotta say even even in my own club some of the kids. You know they've they've got they've got some some you know a little bit of rank on them and their chemi is just it's not good enough to me and I I, I get on them all the time about it and I don't think I don't think we do enough practice of ukemi in our own club and I know a lot of other places probably don't spend nearly as much time as they should it, it has to be the it, it is the most important judo skill in, in my opinion and I I. It's it's good to hear that that you take that so seriously with your own with your own kids. And what's interesting to me about you, your story about your son in the Naga tournament, 
you, you know, I, I've watched some Naga tournaments online and, and things like that and some competitions. And I, I got to tell you, usually a throw is it can be a it, for the person uh, doing the throw or receiving it. It can be a it can be a fight changer. But in, and a lot of times that's because they don't have good ukemi. So, you know, they, they land in an awkward position and not necessarily they get injured, but but it can be very stunning. Um, I, I've seen fights that the complexion of a fight change completely uh, because somebody got thrown, you know, in a, in a no-gi tournament or something like that. So, yeah, Ukemi is something it, – it's probably a topic I, sh- I should do on this podcast um, at some point with some detail um, because I, I just think it's overlooked so often. Now, Ray, before we get into the next topic, I would like to remind you and the rest of the listeners that this podcast is presented by Health IQ, a life insurance agency that helps health conscious people lower their rates on their life insurance. Are you someone who takes care of their health and fitness and takes special care of themselves through proper nutrition? Do you lift weights or take part of a physical activity like judo? And I'm sure many of you listening do. Then visit www.healthiq.com forward slash judo to learn more about Health IQ's special rates for active people like you and me. 56% of Health IQ customers save between 4 and 33% on their life insurance, and these savings are exclusive to Health IQ customers. So if you want to learn more about how Health IQ can help you save on your life insurance, visit www.healthiq.com forward slash judo to get a free rate quote and to learn more about Health IQ's special rates. So Ray, uh, with our during our email discussion, uh, you brought up uh, an article while I was on vacation that I did not know about, and, and I'm surprised that there was no a ding on my Twitter feed. I, I'm pretty sure I follow. I have my alerts for USA Judo and, and the USJA in case there's any news like this. So you brought a very interesting article to my attention. And, and this is groundbreaking news for American Judo. So Ray, what I'm going to do, I'm going to, I'm going to read this article for the benefit of the listeners. And then I want to hear your comments on it. Cause I know that you have you have a lot that you want to talk about in regards to this because it does, uh, from what I understand, will impact you directly. So here's the here's the headline. American judo organizations sign historic alliance agreements. So so here goes. Today, and let's see, this article was written March 15th, right? Because I was on vacation during that time. It was fabulous, by the way. Today, history was made with the signing of the first ever American Judo Alliance Agreement between the United States Judo Association, United States Judo Federation, and United States Judo Incorporated, which is uh, USA Judo. So the USJA, the USJI, and uh, USJF. Actually, USJI is USA Judo. That's what it used to be. Anyway. This new agreement paves the way for three organizations for the three organizations to work together with the focus of growing the sport of judo in the United States. Let's see. We believe the collaboration our organizations have agreed to pursue is, is a must to grow and promote the sport of judo in America, says Mark Hill, president of USA Judo, national governing body for judo in the United States. We could not be happier to work with our judo brothers and sisters in USJA and USJF, and they are appreciative appreciative of their willingness to break down past barriers to advance our sport. 
In addition to updating past agreements that have been in place over the years, the American Judo Alliance Agreement focuses on the following initiatives. Uh, here's a couple of bullet points here. Revision of the reciprocal participation agreement so that members of the USJA, USJF, and USA Judo can continue participating in each other's local and regional events. Second bullet point, the agreement of USA Judo to award the USJA, USJF Junior Grassroots Judo Summer Nationals a national point sanction increase for 2018 beyond awarding seven points for first place, five for second, and three for third. These points will increase with a three-quarter proration if when USA Judo increases points for its national events. So it sounds like, which I didn't realize this, that Perhaps the, the summer nationals and the USJA, USJF national tournaments were not being awarded the same amount of points as the USA Judo uh, uh, national tournaments. So that that's interesting. Let's see. Third bullet point. Added safeguards and requirements for aligned insurance coverages to protect members and participants will be mandated and reviewed annually. Uh, reciprocal recognition of coach certifications provided insurance background screens and safe port trainings have been completed so that without regard to any particular membership affiliation coaches from the three federations will be permitted to coach at all events sanctioned by any of the three organizations that's pretty big let's see the formation yeah, of an integrated huge. yeah yeah it really is <laughs> The formation of an integrated coaching certification task force with representatives from all three organizations will create a proposal for a comprehensive integrated coaching certification program. Yeah, I, I've called for that in the past. And the last bullet point here, the creation of a task force consisting of six coaches or teachers skilled in instruction at all age and skill levels to increase to create a skeleton plan for an American judo development model designed to provide improved processes for the advancement and development of athletes. Now, Ray, I want to get your opinions on this, but I got to share a, a couple of points that I find very interesting here. One, I find it very interesting that no sooner do I start saying things like, the three organizations need to merge. There needs to be one judo organization, yada, yada, yada. As soon as that happens, this thing happens. So I am taking full credit for the historic <laughs> alliance agreement happening between these three federations. Now, of course, I'm kidding, but I got to say these coincidences have happened several times um, since I've started this podcast. And I, I for, for another example... You, for for decades, uh, the JFA over in Australia uh, did not award points to uh, for masters uh, competitors in their masters tournaments uh, or or masters division com uh, competitions for towards their showdown promotions. Well, ever since I had that discussion with uh, with Bob over in Australia, he was my very first interview. That's changed. So now I guess from what I understand, masters points acquired during masters competitions now go towards your showdown promotions. So that's another thing that I've been able to, to do. <laughs> of course, I'm sure it's all a giant coincidence, but I'll take credit because uh, nobody else is going to give me credit. So I'm going to take the credit there, <laughs> but, but you know, this is something that has needed to be done for a long time. I think this is a step in the right direction. Personally, 
I really just think that it all needs to be under the banner of USA Judo. And I think the people who are presidents of the USJA and the USJF, they need to be part of one single organization that focuses on the areas that they they do well in. Now, I I can't I can't speak to personal experiences with the USJA or the USJF, but it seems like those two organizations do certain things well. And USA Judo does, well, in the opinion of some, they, they do certain things well. Um, I mean, I, I think USA Judo is doing a better job than they have in years past. And I think they have got uh, the right people in place for leadership. But I do think these things have been, I mean, the reciprocal coaching, you know, like you kind of, kind of, kind of commented on, that's a big deal uh, because you know, and being able to coach in, in USJA tournaments, you know, so now with my, with my coaching certification, I can coach at a USJA tournament and not have to go through the coaching, uh, that they have. And, and the whole, the creation of a task force, um, to create a skeleton plan for an American judo development model, I think is fantastic because I, I know I I've had a guest in the past, uh, Chris Round, um, he talked about judo. Have I? I once argue. I used to once argue that judo doesn't really ha in the United States doesn't really have an identity. And Chris corrected me, and he's right uh, that judo does have an idea. Uh, you know, American judo does have an identity. Idea identity. Excuse me. And that's a a Nawaza strong uh, approach to judo. And I do agree with that. But I think sure. to have. Uh Right. All of the all of the the strong USA judo competitors that go to the national stage, most all of them have a very strong Nawaza component. Agreed. Whether whether they've gotten that through Brazilian Jiu Jitsu or whether they've gotten that through training with uh, very high level judoka like Jimmy Pedro, who I'm told is is a is a um a terror on the ground. Um. I think to have a skeleton plan for an American for a development model, um, it, it, that sounds to me like it goes beyond a a, a curriculum. It's a, a a plan to develop. And that's something that, that yeah, that's something that uh, nationally in America that is desperately needed. Absolutely, I, I mean, I I because. I think all clubs should have a curriculum that, that a student can take a look at and they know this is what I need to prom be promoted to the next rank. This is what I need to become a better judoka. But, you know, the development model, that might include nutrition. That may include, um, you know, weightlifting, uh, different types of, you, you know, um, fitness programs and, and coaching programs that – that go well beyond the 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 sensei student uh, dynamic. So, I think this is a great step in the right direction for the growth of American judo. Um, now, I could argue, having Steve Scott on the podcast last week, that they, you know, I I, I saw I saw an online petition a couple of weeks ago, basically asking for this to happen, but including um, the the AAU judo organization. I, I know what those guys are doing. 
Um, they are very pleased with what they're doing. I think they're doing a tremendous job. And I, I can't imagine they'll ever be a part of this. And and they shouldn't because I think what they're doing in terms of, of developing traditional judo in their clubs where they can grab the legs, where they're not hamstrung by the by the ever-changing rules of the IJF. Um, I can't ever imagine AAU judo ever going this direction, but for the major three organizations that, that have to follow um, IJF protocols, I, I think this is a step in the right direction. I still would love to see collaboration with other judo organizations like Brazil, but you know, to come up with a development model, I, I think this is great. So Ray, what is your take on this? And what are you, what are your feelings on this? Because you told me earlier that you are a member of the USJA. So how do you think this is going to impact you, your club, your kids' development, uh, everything? Well, first of all, I think that uh, had this happened two or three years ago, that it would have been really helpful for me. And the, I know you know most of this because we've had conversations before right but uh to give the listeners that don't know some context about two to three years ago here in uh southeastern new mexico there was two things that happened at the same time and that was oil prices went down pretty low and there was a winter storm by the name of goliath and those two things caused like a minor it was a really big hit to the economy and what ended up the fallout from that was that the head sensei of the club that i was training at had to leave uh roswell in order to well the head sensei had to leave roswell because of employment and not only that, but I had mentioned that 90 miles, 90 miles south of there, of here, used to be another USJA club. That had sensei left. And it didn't just affect uh, judo clubs. The USA Wrestling Club that was here, that, that instructor and those instructors, they left. And same thing happened with the USA Gymnastics program that was here. So it would, you know, it wasn't just for judo that that happened. But bringing that back to here and why that mattered to me was I wasn't one of the people that had to leave. And so I had to make a choice at that point. And that choice was either I need to come up with my own way of continuing training or I needed to stop doing judo. Those were the two choices at that point. And, and then basically what happened from there was, uh, I went to my organization, the USJA, and I talked to, to some of the people there. And I talked to some of the people at USA Judo saying, Hey, I, I want to do what I need to do in order to keep this program going. What is it that I need to do? And one of the things that that uh, was put in my path was this coach's certification and all of this stuff that that they're trying to unify now in this agreement. And so what happened with me 
and just again giving people some background what happened with me is at that time i was a sankyu usj and uh i went um I went to go get all my certifications. And so I went to a, a USA Judo Coaches Certification Clinic. Um, before I went to that clinic, um, which was 300 miles away from me, it was in El Paso. Um, I, I communicated with the organizers from both USJA and USA Judo because I didn't want to drive 300 miles to a seminar, spend two days training, because I was going to attend both the referee and the coaches clinic, and then right. and then enter my son in the tournament because they had a tournament afterwards where they where they took the new refs and gave them some mat time at the tournament. Um, I didn't want to waste my time. So before then, I talked to USJA, I talked to USA Judo, I made sure that I met all the requirements, which in, which included getting my safe sorts safe sport certification got my heads up certification background check i got all of that i even got cpr certified which is one of the recommendations although it's not a requirement um and then i was tested by the roku dent but getting into some of the details of what went wrong there uh is at the time i was a usja song was not part of USA Judo. The the clinic in the tournament was sanctioned by USA Judo and USJA jointly, but the clinics, and this is the important part, the clinics were taught by USA Judo clinicians. Now, at the time, I was told that if I passed the clinic, I could submit that clinic for section four of my USJA coaches certification, which is the class part, and but what happened there is the USA judo clinician is was not at that time an approved USJA course instructor so <laughs> he could only sign off on the USA judo certification which wasn't supposed to be a problem because the USJA was supposed to be able to take the USA Judo certification. But there was one small detail that started gumming up the works. And that was that USA Judo only gives coaching certifications to Shodan and above. USJA gives coaching certifications to Sankyu and above. So even though I had passed the testing and I had the sign off of the clinician, the USA Judo would not certify me because I was not a USA Judo Shodan. Mm -hmm. And what ended up happening from there is that USJA didn't accept it because USA Judo clinician would not certify it without me getting my Shodan first. So you essentially made a trip out there and and sounds like you wasted your time and probably some money too huh oh yeah oh yeah and 
and I wasted my time and money and, and I was not able to get any of the certifications, even though I had all the signatures and I was told beforehand that this was all up in, you know, I wouldn't have gone if I wasn't told beforehand that, yes, I could do all of this. Uh, and so, so that said, is that the idea that they're actually going to integrate all the coaching certifications between all three or organizations means that I would have never had to go through that process. And, you know, I'm, I'm still not a certified coach, but that, that took my trajectory in a completely different, in a completely different direction, because really what, what, before I made that trip out there and before I had made any of these decisions of that nature, I was like, well, I just need to get all of this stuff, my ducks in a row so that I'm above the board. And so that I can continue doing good judo. I can help other people do good judo and we can be a part of the national organization. And the funny part about that is, is that after all of that happened, I got guidance of several, you know, Sandan level judoka, and they all kind of told me the same thing. And this is, you know, I'm not going to name them because this is multiple states because I ended up, after that happened, I ended up starting to do um, in our training something that martial artists uh, call calibration. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Not no, I'm not quite sure what you mean. Uh, calibration is when you're in the middle of nowhere. You go and you do your your martial art, and then you you kind of you don't have a lot of access. So then you go out to another club, or you go out to a tournament, or you do something like every quarter or every every six months where you mix in with other people that you know are good and then you either compete against them or train with them for an amount of time. So then you can figure out, Oh, well, here's the holes in my game. This is what I need to be doing. This is what I don't need to be doing. And so, right. so, I mean, it's, it's, it's been the way that people have done it for ages. And so that's basically my, that was basically my, my fallback position because if if I'm not able to do it, if I'm not able to do it through the official channels, well, I'm still going to train judo, and and so in networking with with other other black belts and that are outside of our club shodan and other clubs, they all kind of told me the same thing, and and they basically told me in not so many words that if I'm trying to get certified and go through the current system set up by the USJA or USA Judo, that I am not applying the principles of Judo to my martial arts journey. And so mm -hmm. the, the idea is this, is that the goal here is to learn good Judo and to teach good Judo to the people that are around me so that we can all learn and grow. That is the goal, right? The goal isn't to get a coach's certification. The goal isn't to get a black belt. The goal is the goal is to do good judo. And Kano's teachings say 
that you don't oppose strength with strength. When you get resistance, or in my case, when I get pushback from USA Judo or USJA, the correct Judo response to that is to withdraw and reestablish balance in another position and attack the problem from another angle. And mm -hmm. so, and so basically, it was, it was kind of funny because they were all telling me the same thing. They were saying, how, how often do you train judo? Does it matter if USA Judo says it's okay for you to do that? Or are you going to train good judo? And that was, that was a really sideways <laughs> way for me to go because, because it, for, for years I'd just gone, oh, well, USA Judo and USJA and USJF, they're the national clubs. I should just, you know, that's, that's what I should be doing. All right. Uh, but then I figured out through networking with other <laughs> judoka, well, there's club level tournaments, there's freestyle judo tournaments, mm -hmm. there's kosen judo tournaments, there's grappling competitions that allow judoka, and heck, I'm in New Mexico, and I don't know if you know about New Mexico, but there's a lot of MMA here, and. If I wanted to do submissions in MMA and enter as a judoka in New Mexico, I could find competitions every weekend of the year. Yeah. So given that, I could probably, on my own, without the framework of USA Judo or USJA, I can find enough competitions and enough uh <laughs> enough other grapplers that are interested in doing the same thing that i'm doing why would i stay going down the path that usa judo usja and usjf are are setting for me i mean it, it just doesn't make sense right right and and that's what that's what those other that's what those other senses were were impressing on me it's like well, if if you're not able to go down this path, then don't go down the path. You're still able to do good judo, right? So, so all that to say that you know, two years ago had this had this uh, alliance happen, I probably would would have been able to to continue down the approved uh, national course, but. But really, at this point, it's really hard to say that I should because there's enough good judo and good grappling to go around. There is so much that any of the American judo associations can learn from even just 10th Planet as far as yeah. get, getting the knowledge to the people who want to learn judo. I mean, that's... <laughs> something as basic as that it, it blows my mind that we're talking about that as that basic knowledge transfer between between the higher ranks and the lower ranks is a problem yeah i i agree i mean heck you, you know you're talking about coaching certifications early there's no reason why anybody should have to drive 300 miles to do a coaching certification There's that should be done online that should absolutely be done online Oh, and there, there. I mean, that can be argued. I don't. I think that 
I think in my particular case, the, there was the referee certification too. I think that needs to be have some sort of physical presence because that's not necessarily, but but that's different. But that is, yeah, that is that is different, and I I do agree with you there. But the you know the coaching certification, I I at least at least what I went through from a coaching certification, I that that could easily be done online. A question, have you watched any of the, or did you watch any of the Katrenberg Grand Slam that took place uh, last weekend? Was it this past weekend? No, it was this past weekend. Yeah, yeah. Yes, I, uh, my family and I always watch it. <laughs> okay, so what were your thoughts on that? One is that my kids, at least, they like the women's divisions a lot more than they like the heavyweight men's divisions. Well, so do I. I, I think the women's divisions are more entertaining to watch uh, top to bottom. Yeah, and and they they don't they're more exciting. They're they're doing more stuff. <laughs> it's not just Seonagi. <laughs> yeah, right. And and actually, in particular, um, my daughter really, really liked all of the matches by Anne-Sophie Jura, I think is her, her name, the Belgian. Uh-huh. And, and she did, uh, it wasn't in the repertoires, it was the, one of the, it was one of the earlier matches she did, she, she choked out her opponent, like, full pass out, and my, my children... <laughs> Just thought that was the neatest thing. <laughs> she completely passed out. Was she laying on the ground? Did they? Did the IJF cut away the camera to the crowd? That's usually what they do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They did. They, they did cut that away. They, they show the crowd. They show Marius Pfizer. They show every everything and anything besides the person that's unconscious on the mat. <laughs> it's kind of humorous, but uh, but when I when I catch up on the on the. Uh, on some of the matches, I I tend to watch the direct feed, the uh, mm -hmm. of, of the camera that doesn't move. So you know what what they show on the on the live stream, you know, showing the crowd and everything. I do I watch the stream where they actually um, don't cut away from the person unconscious on the mat. So they get the doctors out there and you know getting getting uh, whoever it is that's knocked out. They get them you know, smelling salts and all that kind of stuff. It's kind of funny how they approach well, It's funny that. too, because, because my, my kids like to see her matches because she, that's not the first time she's done that. Yeah. And, uh, and they're kind of expecting it now. <laughs> so what else, um, what else did you, what were your takeaways from, from the Ekaterinburg Grand Slam? Well, one of the things that, that really stuck out to my mind was I have the advantage of, of my kids are watching with me, so so they pick up, up on some things, and if it's confusing to them, they'll start asking questions. And one yeah. of the things that they started asking questions is uh, quite a few times, instead of rolling out of an arm bar, a straight arm bar, a lot of the judoka were standing up. Hmm. And... And basically what that was is there's the new IGF rule that is in place to prevent the flying arm bar. Yep. And, uh, yeah. 
and there was a lot of, uh, not a lot, but I mean, there was enough so that so that my kids were noticing, but there was a lot of people that were taking that rule and abusing it by standing up so that the ref call, had to call a mate instead of actually trying to resist the armbar. They would let the armbar get locked in and try and make their way to standing position so that the ref would pull them out of the armbar instead of having to roll out of the armbar. Right, right, and, and continuing in the Waza situation, right. Yeah, and that happened quite a few times, and that was really surprising to me. But anytime you put in a rule like that, you're going to get people that abuse it. Well, of course, and, and I, I've talked about that many times with these rule changes and stuff. And I, I, and that's that's exactly been my point with with when people bash the IJF, which I I know a lot of their points are valid, but very few people actually take a look at the athletes and, and the coaches that come up with these strategies to abuse every single little rule that they, that that that's out there. You know? Yeah, absolutely. So was there anything else that stood out to you? Any contests, any, anything that you would watch that uh, you, you thought of interest? What, what are your thoughts on the, 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 the rule changes as a whole for 2018? I, I don't know if you're familiar with what they were versus what they are, but uh, what, what do you think about them now? Well, I really don't like what they did with the, with the, uh, the changes to the Nawaza. I think that, that some of the things that they did like to prevent the flying arm bar. And there's the other one that, that prevents the, the standing guillotine. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know, the, those changes were made. And I think that, that those were bad, bad changes in my opinion. It, it prevents uh Nawaza and I, I don't, and maybe that's just the American in me, but I don't, I don't like the fact that they're, they're, trying to force some of the Nawaza out of the competition. Yeah, it's it's um you know I almost I kind of call it the Ryan Vargas rule where they 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 stopped a lot of the the skillful entries into Nawaza and and it's it's not a Nawaza situation unless both competitors have had their knee touch the ground at some at some point in the exchange. And I I don't really like that rule. Um and I, I got to tell you, I, I've been trying to give it a chance, and I'm just not liking the way that they're calling Ipon and Wazari now. It, I think they had it right last year where, my God, some of the Ipon that they're calling on these throws and some of the Wazari that they're calling on these throws are just, it, it really looks bad. And all last year I was calling for, I wanted to see Wazari. I was set the Ipon back. Um, and, I, and I'm here to say I, I was wrong on that because I, I was not a fan of the accumulating Wazari that does not ever equal an Ipon. But they they brought back Wazari. I was set the Ipon, but, but they, they have created... They have relaxed the calls on these throws. Like I hate rolling epon, and you never saw it. You never saw a rolling epon called last year. It was very difficult to to get a a really solid epon. But when you saw it, it was awesome. And I'm not saying you don't see those those type of throws now, but but man, I, I did, some of the epon that I'm watching that I'm seeing called here are the some of the softest things I've ever seen in my life. 
it's not every match, but boy, I, I tried to, I, you know, I watched the Paris Grand Slam, you know, the Dusseldorf Grand Slam, and now and now this Grand Slam. These are really big events, and, and a lot of important decisions are being made on very questionable calls. And I don't blame the refs. I blame the rules. I don't know. I mean, have you... Do you have any opinion on how on on how you're seeing these calls being made in terms of you know the scoring? I think that if for lack of a better phrase, I think that if the men played more like the women play, that there would be a lot less of an issue because the and and I actually agree. I and I, and actually I think one of the other things um one of the other things that I really think hurts hurts the way that that judo is being done, and and I guess I can't complain about this too much because it's both an IJF rule and it's a a freestyle judo rule is that is that you can't do shots, you can't shoot in, and that's a foul, and and I think that if we're wanting to see the big ipon, if we're wanting to see the big um techniques then some level of of shooting needs to come back in and i understand it's like well you don't want you don't want them shooting because you don't want them to sprawl because sprawling is usually the reaction for for shooting yeah i you know i i don't know about that only because what what ended up happening before 2010 is that it seemed like from, from 73 kilos and below everybody was shooting and that's at what all that anybody was doing. And they were just getting the Coca or, or maybe a Yuko and then trying to ride that to victory. I, I think I, I do for, for as much as I don't like the way that, that Judo's being called, I, I um in, in terms of how the throws are being scored, I think the brand of Judo that we're seeing is, is a lot better than what it was in years past. But I, I mean, I'm not saying that leg grabs should be banned. I, I'm definitely not saying that. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I tend to disagree just a little bit on that because I, I think the way freestyle judo does it, if I'm not mistaken, you have to at least have a standard grip at some point. Is that correct? Yeah, which prevents you from shooting, <laughs> which is basically what it does. But, but yeah, that. That's the way it's done. But no, what I was what I was saying is that, you know, the reason why the women's divisions and the lighter weight men's divisions look so much better and are played so much better is that the rule changes make it so that their matches have less shooting, but they're able to do stuff. But then the heavyweights shooting for the heavyweights is how you get to those. Um, exciting matches and so i don't know i don't think that it's something that that i'd be able to solve <laughs> right yeah 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 so there's a couple of things that i wanted to cover uh talk about the grand slam that that i saw some, some stats and some of the matches that i covered for for the benefit of those listening uh th this was not an event that was very well attended uh, for a grand slam, which was a little bit surprising to me. There was only 251 competitors and usually an event like this draws about at, at least 350. So that's, that's not 
that's really not a lot. They, I and you know when I was looking at the, at the draws and, and things like that, I was thinking to myself, goodness gracious, where where is everybody? Japan, as usual, led the way in the medal count, followed by Russia, uh, Brazil, and Mongolia. And and France only earned a single bronze medal in this tour- tournament, but they did not send their best competitors. Obviously, Teddy Riner was not there, and uh, Clarice Begnenu was not there, who I, I love watching her compete. Uh, and Georgia, the, George, the Georgians did not have a very good day, and I was shocked to see uh, Guram Tushishvili, uh, who's one of my favorites, get bounced in the second round, uh, which is very surprising. I don't know. You know, earlier this year he was he was disqualified for for kneeing somebody in the head, and and now he's getting bounced to the second round. I don't know what's going on with him. Yeah, uh, that was see here. that was surprising too. The, yeah, I, I thought that was surprising. You know, one of the things that I really enjoyed is the uh, I get you would call this the must see TV, but I I thought the under eighty one men's bronze medal match was v- very excellent. In fact, uh, that one had Saeed, um, the Iranian. Oh, with Frank DeWitt, right? Yes. And yeah, that was a great match. That that was really entertaining. I'm surprised DeWitt uh, uh, lost that. Yeah, and and I I'm gonna probably go back and clip that that one out because I, I'm gonna show that one to everyone in my club because. That was a really exciting match, and his Kosorogake was was really excellent. Yeah, and uh, and it's like you 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 look at that and you you pull that out and you go this this is what this is what it should look like. <laughs> this is what we strive for. And yeah, that I I agree. That was a fantastic match, and at the very end of that, when when I saw when uh, when the Iranian had. He had made like this kind of a gesture at first, and I was thinking to myself, "Uh-oh, he's going to get disqualified here for taunting." Um, but then, uh, then at the very end, he raised uh, Dewitt's hand and and um, you know, you know, really congratulated him on a very hard-fought match. I mean, that was he. he they were both excellent there, uh, and, yeah, and Dewitt is 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 certainly one of the best in that division. Yeah, that was excellent judo. I thought that was really excellent judo. Yeah. Um, speaking of excellent, um, Hifumi Abe in the under 66 kilo division, he has not lost a match in 20 since 2015, and he's got the second longest winning streak next to Teddy Renner. And did you watch any of the under 66 kilo at all? I know you said you watched uh, day one. I believe his match was on day one. Yeah, I watched some of that. It wasn't really as exciting. No, no, <laughs> it was not. And as a matter, I agree. And as a matter of fact, his win in that gold medal match, it had me shaking my head. I, I thought that was a bad Wazari call. That should have been a no call, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree um, with that completely. Yeah, just, just, just the that, and that's exactly what I'm talking about. Where, the, you know, now e- even though they say that Yukos, old Yukos, are now Wazari, that he was not even on his side barely. When he made that throw, I mean, just just the nothing throw. It should not have been called called anything, and uh, but but they gave him the call, and it was just uh, unfortunate for uh, Shmaliov of Russia, who is the obviously the hometown favorite. I just, uh, you know, I thought the ref had it right the first time when they gave it a no score, but upon video review, 
it was changed and and that's how Abe won. But I'm not taking anything away from Abe. I think he would have won that match anyway. But um, yeah, and and yeah. that was funny too because even my wife didn't think that that was a proper um, Wazari, and and she doesn't do judo. She was like, yeah. that can't be right. That can't <laughs> be right. That can't be a score. Yeah, exactly. And I and I said this, you know, when the new rules came out, I I said I said on the podcast like, man. You know, just the way it is these days. Don't get taken on your on your off your feet because if you do, you're gonna get scored on. You're gonna get a score uh, on whether that's Wazari or that's Ipon. It doesn't matter. You could you could land on your knees, twist about, and then kind of roll onto your back. They're gonna give a Wazari, and and, and that's just uh, I just think that's a shame. But um, but yeah, Abe is dominating that division, and I think um. I think everybody else may have to take uh, Fabio Basile's lead. Did you watch any of the under 73 kilos at all? I watched some of Fabio Basile's um, matches just because my son likes the way he plays. Yeah, so for those who may not know, Fabio Basile is the, was the surprise gold medal winner in the under 66 kilo division. Um, over the past year and a half or so, he's been doing everything <laughs> except judo which is um you know doing modeling shoots and the italian dancing of the stars and basically hooking up with every single supermodel in italy that he can so he's that that gold medal that he's he's gotten a lot of mileage out of that gold medal in rio so now it's time for him to actually get back to doing some judo so he decided to bump up to the 73 kilo division which i think for him was a smart thing to do because Really, Abe is just going to dominate the uh, – he's going to dominate that 66-kilo division until he decides to stop. I, I don't see anybody coming up this year um, or really up until the Tokyo Olympics stopping him. He's just incredible. But he managed to get the – Basile managed to get his first uh, tour medal, which was which is pretty good. He, he had a good run. Um, he, de he defeated uh, Jean Say of, of – uh, uh, you know, Jansei Smoglov of Kazakhstan with a pretty good Dayashi uh, for Wazari that I th thought he should have been called a pawn on that. But, um, you know, then again, you know, the way they're calling these 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 throws, you just never know. But, um, yeah, he, he got the Wazari and then um, he managed to hold on to that for the bronze. Did you watch uh, the eighty-one, the under eighty-one kilo final between uh, Fujiwara and Sasaki of Japan, both uh, countrymen? Yeah, it was really, it was really something else. And you, usually, the 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 matches between fellow countrymen can be duds because they they know each other's style. But but this one was a hotly contested match, and it was really fascinating that how it ended. Sasaki now. I, there's a Shinjiro Sasaki in the United States who's a Team USA coach. I'm not talking about that Sasaki. Um, Sasaki attacked with a Kochigari, but it looked like Fujiwara knew exactly what was coming, and he basically countered him flat on his back with um, with just a hand motion. I don't even know what you would call the call the throw. I mean, not the uh, was that the uh, Uchimana Sakashi. No, no, no. He, uh, Sasaki just, he came in with a Kouchi Maki Komi and just in, in Fujiwara just turned him on his back. It was not, uh, he didn't really do any, any really recognizable technique. He just, 
he just twisted him about and kiyed and, and got a solid pawn. It was really nice to see. It was great, uh, uh, great counter judo. Oh, I have to look that one up. I like yeah, that. Yeah, no, that was a good one. So, yeah, so that's my review. Those are my thoughts, my parting thoughts of the Ekaterinburg Grand Slam. Uh, not a lot of superstars there, and uh, except for Hifumi Abe. So, yeah, so I'm hoping that the next big tournament, they've got uh, you, you've got a lot of the bigger stars. I'm not sure what's next on the calendar. I'll have to take a look at that. So, yeah. Well, we've gone uh, a little bit over two hours. Do you got any parting thoughts? Anything you wanted to get out there, Ray? Any you want any uh, social media, whatever the case may be? Well, first of all, I want to say that really, um, I, I know I've said some negative things. You know, I'm, I'm trying not to call anyone out because really, I actually do love judo. <laughs> I want to oh, train judo, cool. and. And and it's more along the lines of there are some things within the sport that need to be improved, and and I'm recognizing those. Uh, but other than that, it's it's actually, I think that all of these organizations that I'm I'm saying that need to improve are doing a better job than I can. So so really, I I don't want people to think that I'm trying to be negative about all of this. I'm I'm really not. I I think that everyone's doing a great job. I just. I just know that there's a lot of room for improvement. Yeah, and I think we all understand that. You know, it's it's important to get some of these. It's important to give the perspective of of people who are on the receiving end of these type of changes and such. It's, I mean, these type of. It's part of why I have the podcasts to to discuss these type of things. I I think when I first started, I used to take, I used to have very poignant criticisms on on the organizations on certain things about judo and i feel like i've i've tried to soften my not only my opinions but maybe how they are expressed so i don't think you said anything here that was entirely negative but but there's nothing wrong with constructive criticism and there's nothing wrong with fair criticism and fair observations on what on how things really are you know we're not calling any one person out and and like you pointed out you know a lot of these people who are in these positions in these organizations most of them are not paid money to to be in these roles so they've all got full-time jobs they're all most of them are running their own clubs and things like that so it's it's a lot to ask of 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 people and you know i mean heck if there was a way that i could volunteer and in, in some way and to any of these organizations and, and be of some kind of assistance, I, I think I would do that. I don't know if there's, I, I don't know if uh, any of the, the organizations e even allow for that. I have no idea. Um, so yeah, definitely Ray. I mean, we, I think anybody listening understands you're not trying to be overly negative here. They're just that you've made some fair points. Yeah. And, so so yeah, I I'm just a person that's trying to trying to learn and do good, good judo, um, and my uh, I'm most active on Instagram. Uh, Same so, here. So if anyone's interested in seeing what's up with with what I'm doing, then they can follow me at Ray Baronis. Just my name. I'm not <laughs> Mr. Judo Guy or anything, uh, or or under sixty six or whatever it is that that people do on their 
on their Twitter, I just uh, or their Instagram handle. I just put my name. Um, but yeah, and oh, I was just gonna say you got a really nice Instagram. Some of the pictures you take of of uh, the local scenery in New Mexico is really breathtaking. I I, I must say that there's you have some really beautiful shots out there. Oh, I took those down. What? <laughs> yeah, they're not you, there anymore. I haven't. I haven't. I guess I haven't been on your Instagram in a while. You you took them down. All, yeah, all of them. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, I just didn't. What was happening? Okay, I'll I'll, I'll let you know what was happening. Basically, I start. I started using my Instagram to help me do better judo. And, and basically what it is, is, is if you put something out on the internet and you say, Hey, look, here's my Kosotogari. If you put something on the internet, there's so many people on the internet that are willing to tell you how you did it wrong. And, and given my location, I need all the input I can. So yeah. I started using my Instagram. I started putting some of the stuff up there, knowing that some people would come in and say, hey, you're doing this wrong. Or, hey, you know, why don't you do this or that? And so I, I was using the Internet's own negativity against itself. And so I didn't really want to have the mixed message of, of having the scenery plus the judo. So I just kind of took the scenery down so that it would just be the judo so then I could get more people to, to comment good or bad on on what my what i was doing specifically on the judo so that's why i took it down oh no kidding that that's kind of, that's kind of funny were you getting a lot of comments on your videos uh, nobody uh usually when i put up videos of myself nobody nobody uh says anything uh to uh, really anything <laughs> quite frankly well you don't get comments on the videos but i i don't know if you've seen if you if you redo the videos as stories then and people have to comment in order for them to respond on the stories and so i was using oh, the stories. Okay. yeah oh gotcha yeah i've i've not published my first story yet ever so one one day i'll one day i'll get around to doing that um and then everybody will get the notification that i put up my first story i i gotta make it i once i when i do that it's got to be something good i haven't decided how i'm gonna do that <laughs> yeah but but yeah if if uh if there's anyone on Instagram that that does judo that that follows me and I look at your Instagram and and you do judo, then I'm gonna follow you back because I'm always interested in 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 seeing good judo happen. Of course, and I've been following you for for quite some time. So, like I said, I I, I enjoy I do like your Instagram. I hope hopefully you get some enjoyment out of mine. So, all right, Ray. Well, I think we can we can end things here. I appreciate your time. I appreciate you coming on the podcast, and um, we'll definitely keep in touch. Awesome. Thank you awesome. for having me on. Yeah, thank you for having me on. I, I hope I wasn't too boring for people. No, no, not at all, not at all. I appreciate your time, and uh, we'll definitely talk soon. Well, there you have it. I hope you guys, if you made it this far, I hope you appreciated the podcast. You appreciated the discussion. If you have any questions or comments or, or thoughts on the episode, feel free to email me at judochopsuishow at gmail.com. I always love new followers on my Instagram. You can find me at Judoka, And I especially love new followers on my Twitter, which is also at Judoka. 
And if you want to find me on Facebook, just do a search for the Judah Chop Suey podcast and you will be able to find my page. And if you're daring enough, feel free to look up Dave Roman on Facebook and you can add me as a friend if you want. That's not necessary. I prefer you follow the page over that. But you know what? I'm not going to deny a friend request from a listener, especially if you like what I'm doing. And if you don't like what I'm doing, I'm just going to block you. (laughs) Kidding, kidding, kidding. I wouldn't do that. But anyway, I hope you guys are having an excellent week. I hope you have a great day. I hope you are having an excellent time during your training. Train hard. Stay safe out there. And until next time, I'm out. Open Gangnam Style. Gangnam Style. Open Gangnam Style.